Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Tim Reed is active with a number of protests, witnesses, and helping hands to those on a pilgrimage across the Mexico-USA border in the Las Cruces area. He is active with the Oak Tree Project and New Mexico Café, Comunidades en Acción y de Fe. He protested at the Tornillo Detention Tent City, and he has sought communication with the authorities on the border. Most of all, he has acted as a compassionate presence on the southern border of New Mexico with open arms and heart for those in need. We meet today in person at the Friends General Conference gathering. Tim, thank you so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. I'm glad to be here. Appreciate this opportunity to share hands-on information. And it was really nice that you reached out to me. We arrived just a day or two ago here at the Friends General Conference gathering being held this year in Grinnell College in Iowa. You're from New Mexico. I'm from Wisconsin. We've met here on Middle Ground. And you saw that there was one opening in my schedule for interviews Mm -hmm. that I'm doing here. You called me up. And it was a little bit appalling to me when I noticed that I hadn't done any interviews related to the border crisis. To some degree, it's there's the crisis that's happening south of the border that people are coming seeking help from the United States. And there's a crisis caused from our side by people who I think have a lot of fear about immigrants. So you called me up and said, hey, I could be available. So here we sit before an audience of five people in the audience. Could you make some noise out there? We're sitting down together. I had a short conversation with you ahead of time, but there's a lot that I have yet to learn. Could you fill me in, Tim, a little bit about your background, your connection with what's happening on the border? It's a difficult question to answer because being born in New Mexico, I was aware of the impact of the class structure, the class system, and the position that racism holds in that system because of this. Well, it's a long story. And being aware of that, I I wanted to, to... involve myself in activities that did something to address the existing oppressions that were in the, env- the cultural environment that I found myself. So that led me to seeking information and people who were doing interesting activities, many of whom date back to the 1900s, before our present 2000 years. And that, that was sort of built the foundation that led me to go further trying to find really what was going on. So I got involved with this border project because I live 35 miles from the border, and the border's reality has uh, impacted my life considerably and the lives of other people around me to flesh that out. I know families who live both sides of the border. The border didn't used to exist, and people would show up when I I work in construction, And so I'd be working at these various jobs, building houses. People would show up, say they're looking for work. So they would get a job working on this construction project. The Border Patrol would come around and say, okay, we're going to pick you up. So they'd pick them up, and I'd make sure that they got paid before they left. The next day, they'd be back. So the border didn't really exist. 
The same thing was true with families. They could come and go as they needed to. And it was no big deal. So, and how far back are we talking about here? Uh, we're talking 1980s. Things got tightened up after. I didn't really pay attention at the time. But it became harder and harder to get across the border. 2002, 2003, things became really tight. And getting across the border was extraordinarily difficult. It would take, instead of, of 10 or 20 minutes, two to four hours. And Just this, anybody crossing. Anybody crossing. And this wrecked the economy, the street economy in El Paso. You used to be able to go to El Paso and, and shop Mexico. But that's really diminished, profoundly so. Okay, and so you were doing work in construction, building houses, mm-hmm. garages, refurbishing houses, whatever, you yeah. doing all that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and you had a crew working with you. I was working with a crew. The guy that owned the projects didn't seem to have much knowledge of the area. And there's a couple of cases where that was to his detriment and to my benefit because I was, became sort of an interpreter, got more work out of him than I wanted. But the point there is you're working with folks, including some people who come from across the border. Yeah. Are you a lifelong New Mexican? Yes, born and raised. And so how's your Spanish? You can, you can peel off into Spanish if you wish. I'd be just showing off. I've one, one thing I've learned is I can speak Spanish. I'm not fluent. But one thing I've learned is uh, it doesn't necessarily apply in our area of New Mexico, but generally it's wise to ask for permission to use the language. When I'm speaking with someone who is a Spanish speaker, I'll say, may I have permission to use the language? Because the language has been so brutally oppressed for generations that if I speak Spanish with like that and I don't speak it well, then the brain shuts down. The person I'm speaking with says, oh, here we go again. And they might not think it verbally, but that sensation is there of more oppression, more salt piled on the wound. And so I, I generally ask for permission. And dealing with people that are directly from Mexico in the workplace, the job sites, it's real obvious that they're from Mexico. And so in that situation, I'll converse in Spanish. So when did you become interested and why did you become interested in activism relative to the border? That's another hard question. It may have its roots in, I used to work for a guy who was from Mexico City. He had sort of like a moving company. And so I'd, I'd drive truck for him. And we'd go back and forth from El Paso to north. And I could go through the border checkpoint no problem. He would go through the border checkpoint, hang his head out, blah, blah, quack, quack, and so he'd hand out pieces of paper, and away we'd go. And it was real obvious to me then that something ain't right. I started to look at, to get information, get what I could, and found out that the system is actually very brutal, and people are profiled and targeted, and the result is kind of sad. So I thought to myself, and also made connections with a group called Cafe in uh, Las Cruces. And they're, they were starting to, do, to mount up protests against the fence, which some people call the wall. So I participated in those. I also got involved with participation with uh, shutting down Tornillo. And Tornillo was a child detention center. And collectively, we managed to do it. And there's also another child detention center that I think the powers that be were shamed into taking action to deal with the, the abuse that was piled onto the kids there. 
I'm not the only person here who's had experience with detention centers. If I get a phone call, I'll pick it up and invite some more information. And so about when did this activism come in? When did this change? When did you get involved with the protests and with activism at Tornillo and other places? Uh, You said about 2002 is when the border became, it became very difficult to cross the border. Right. Actually, physically showing up had to have been maybe five years ago. Five years? Okay, so around 2014 or so. And the reason I'm trying to get a handle on this in part is because I try and pay attention to media, both left and right ring and mainstream. And part of the words that get shared on the right wing is, we have to close the border for security reason. 2002 sounds like, okay, we're worried about terrorism, we're worried about bombs or whatever coming in the United States, and there's a steady stream, or an easy stream, I guess, at that point. Did those concerns speak to you or the other people in your area in New Mexico? Oh, no, we held our, our ribs and laughed. And, was, and laughed because because it, it couldn't happen or because there's no way to do anything about it, maybe? And both of those were realities. I mean, the... You can't close down that border. Even today, it's still got lots and lots of holes in it. And the main propaganda is drugs now, where it used to be um, people carrying bombs. Well, the people who carried bombs came from Canada. They didn't come from Mexico. It's clearly just a simple racist statement. It has nothing to do with our reality. So that's why we held our ribs and laughed. So you said we... I'm pretty sure New Mexico is known as a red state, uh, as it's called. I've got no. To, well, straighten me out. I want, I, I've only spent about two days there. Uh, that was not quite long enough. We've had one horribly red representative who has been replaced with a blue representative who happens to be from the area that I'm living in now. And I'll be glad to share her name if that would be appropriate. Sure, it's a, of course. Her name is Sotil Torres. Xochitl's a, uh, a name of a Mexican goddess. It's spelled X-O-C-H-I-T-L. And Torres is just T-O-R-R-E-S. And she's now our uh, Democratic representative from our district, too. The people like Udall, Senator Udall and Senator Heinrich, are Democrats from the northern part of the state. Our state government has become as wonderfully blue, even blue bloods at this point. We used to be controlled by uh, the well-bathed oil men and mining interests, but they become too weak. And now ordinary people have more of a voice than we ever had. So is Arizona more towards red than you? Much more. Arizona had it was the, called the show-me-your-paper state. And if we drove to Arizona and I looked brown, I'd have to have a U.S. ID of some sort. Well, this makes a difference. Now, again, you're in Las Cruces, which is, what, 30 miles or something from the border? 35 yeah. miles from the border. So there's a lot of border crossings that have happened. Yeah. But, but I think that's been the spending on border police and the ICE mm-hmm. staffs have been increased. Certainly energy around the Build the Wall crew has increased quite a bit. How has that impacted you in Las Cruces? And you've mentioned already the Tornillo Child Detention Center, other projects. Tell me what's going on. What, how is the blue state of New Mexico facing what's happening on the border? Uh, it would be inappropriate for me to speak for the entire state, but I can speak for the people that I know. 
and we show up. We say, no, we do not want this thing. Do not militarize the borderlands. Keep your military hands off of us. We don't need you. You don't serve any real purpose. Leave. Our message has not been particularly noticed. At one point, I was going to chain myself to the wall. But after doing some discussion, I discovered that that's not going to do anything except, you know, maybe satisfy my strange desires. But the reality is that it would not change the policies of the U.S. government. And the people that I have talked with about this issue have pointed out that it puts everybody who is a naturalized citizen in jeopardy because their citizenship can be rejected overnight. Other issues, I can be charged with a federal crime. They'll take me two years to go through and then be tossed into federal jail and spend the rest of what's left of my life looking at four walls and some bars and maybe having access to some books. Uh, that doesn't appeal to me, and it doesn't really have much that much of an impact. If I could get an international organization to chain ourselves to the wall from Texas to California, that would definitely have an impact. Uh, I've asked the people outside of our immediate border area what impact they would have. It would be on them to see the news covering this mass of people chained to the border. And the people that I talked to were not selected because they were blue bloods or liberals. They said it would be an uplifting experience to see a genuine protest of real people saying, we don't put up, we don't like this. This is not okay. This isn't okay for our government to be doing. Do you have local media that's pro or con, uh, either in Las Cruces or maybe statewide? Because nationally, yes, we don't hear much about right. what's going on there. Yeah. But what about the local media? Local media is owned by corporations that are outside of New Mexico. And so we get a certain point of view, which doesn't include the whole picture. So it's not being uplifted by local media. Oh, wait, with one wait. exception, there is a uh, college campus radio TV station, and they will run some stories about the border. It's not particularly focused on the border, but occasionally there'll be some stories. For Spirit in Action today, we're speaking with Tim Reed. Tim Reed is one of the participants here at the Friends General Conference gathering held this year at Grinnell College. And he contacted me because he's been active on the border near Las Cruces, New Mexico, with border activism. I've called this Compassion Across the Border. And we'll talk about your motivations some more in a little bit. But I'd really like to know what you can tell me about the specific actions. What is happening at the border, people coming to the border, and what are you doing it from this side, and what's maybe being done from the other side? People are coming in the droves, thousands. Many people are coming long distances away from Honduras, Guatemala, Ecuador, uh, even Cuba, Venezuela. And they're, well, you've seen the TV coverage of these caravans. There are caravans, and one of them showed up in El Paso. But along with that, there are these families that are crushing through the thousands of miles of, of desert and jungle and danger. And some people are dying on the way. And if I've discovered if you're female and you're coming from the south to the north to the border, you'll be raped. If you're young and you get to the border, you might be stolen and sold into slavery. That's people who show up at, quote, the edge. So what's happening now in El Paso Juarez is there's holding centers where people who are seeking, there's, there's two ways to get into the United States. One is to cross at a port of entry, 
and the other is to cross without inspection. Those are the, the government terms, which means you cross where there is no port of entry. Going back to the people who go to the port of entry, you have essentially two opportunities there. Recently, the people who show up at the port of entry, if you have relations in the United States and you have some kind of papers that say so, you can be sent across the border into the United States, have a preliminary interview, some of which is called a credible fear interview. Sometimes they don't do that. And you'll get a leg band that has a radio frequency identification on it. And so you can wander around in the United States waiting for your trial. And you have to have an immigration attorney to be with you at your immigration trial. The other condition is if you show up at the border at uh, the border crossing point and the people at the border crossing point don't want to have anything to do with you, they're tired, blah, blah. Then this is the border patrol. You will be invited to stay in Juarez, in Mexico. And so there's a designated area in Mexico, and the same is true with Tijuana, where all the people are piled up and have the, they have to do the best they can to survive. If you've seen anything like the refugee camps that are in Europe and Asia, that's similar to what is being experienced in Tijuana and Juarez. As far as on down to, to, the, to Brownsville, Texas, I, had, I don't have information. So life is rough. If you bring your family, you want to get asylum. The re reason you bring your family and yourself is to escape brutality and oppression and fear. And you get to the border, and of course you get brutality and oppression and fear. That's that one part of the demographic is people who show up at the border, at the checkpoint, port of entry. I'll get it right. So you get to the port of entry, and you've got those two paths. One is to wait until the border patrol will see you. The other is to get passed through. When you get passed through, then you're handed off to an outfit called Asunciation House. And this is where that oak tree comes in because the Asunciation House will distribute people that need housing until they get in contact with their relatives. So contact gets made. And people from the port of entry are uh, delivered principally by Border Patrol, and secondarily by ICE to these various locations. And now they've, they've increased the uh, drop-off point to our city government in Las Cruces. That's if you get through that port of entry. If you don't get through the point of entry and you're desperate because you don't want to go back to fear and brutality, you step across the line outside the ports of entry, and that's when you cross without inspection. And because the Border Patrol is set up in such a way as to where the Border Patrol agents can see each other, there's a mile or so between the Border Patrol agents. They can see each other. They have radio contact. They've sort of fudged the law. And I can go into some of those details in a minute. But the Border Patrol is looking at each other, the members of the Border Patrol looking at each other, and they're seeing, watching these places where people will cross. And somebody, I've seen, heard of this, haven't been there personally. I've heard where a person crossed the border, walked right to the Border Patrol agent, and he theoretically is not, he's under, under surveillance, so he has not stepped into the United States, even though he's here to report himself. He is under surveillance and therefore under control. The Border Patrol agent picks him up, drags him off to the detention centers, drops up, and this happens to everyone, drops everybody into their detention center, and they sit there for a couple of days and then are taken to the federal courthouse, either in El Paso or Las Cruces. And things happen there. If you're a family and you step across the border, your family is dissolved. 
and your children are sent to these various locations, and the adults are sent to the various detention centers. I want to ask you about why the children are split up from the families. That doesn't quite make sense to me. But first, I want to remind folks that you're listening to Spirit in Action. Our website is northernspiritradio.org. On that site, you can find links to our guests. So, for instance, you want to connect with the kind of work that Tim Reed is doing. Amongst links you'll find for Tim Reed are Project Oak Tree. And that website, you can just Google Project Oak Tree. And, of course, the link's on northernspiritradio.org. If you've got a really good memory, it's RC dlc.org slash oak tree rcdlc.org oak tree and also there's a website that you'll find useful we'll talk about this more in a moment freedomforimmigrants.org and there's many other links to all of our guests for the last 14 years on northernspiritradio.org extra information like the stations where we're broadcast a place for you to post comments We really do prefer two-way communication, and we're doing that in part today because we're doing this before a live audience here at Grinnell College in Grinnell, Iowa, as part of the Friends General Conference gathering. There's also on our website a donate button. That's how this full-time work is supported. It's not by government, and it's not by corporations. It's because you, the listeners, want this to continue. So click donate when you come, even more so. And I'd really love to hear what kind of community radio stations you have around where you are, Tim. You already mentioned at the college. Alternative media is so absolutely important. As you just heard, Tim said that the media in the state of New Mexico is owned by people who aren't particularly motivated motivated to highlight what's going on there, the injustices and the lack of compassion that's happening at the border. So please support your local community radio station. Do that first. And then if you can help out Northern Spirit Radio, please do. Again, Tim Reed is here. He's not a lawyer and he's not the head of a nonprofit organization. His work was construction and the work of his heart, it appears, is compassion at the border. So that's why he's with us here today for Spirit in Action. So you just mentioned that what they do is the family is dissolved when they come across the border. Why do they do that? Why do they separate kids from parents? What's that about? It's a legal requirement of the Border Patrol. It is a policy. If you arrest someone who's under 18 and someone who's over 18, you have to separate them because the over 18 is considered an adult and therefore is treated as such. Under 18 is considered a juvenile and therefore goes to juvie court, whereas the over-18 goes to adult court. Has that been a long-standing policy? Uh, yeah, as long as I can remember. Okay, still doesn't make sense to me. I mean, I, I can understand that it is the policy, and that's what the border agents are required to do. But I'll tell you, if I'm traveling with my son over to France or to Kenya or wherever, we come across the border and get separated, I would be frantic. Is this the policy anywhere else in the world, or is this a specialty of the United States? I haven't researched that. I know that it's happening in my area and all along the border. So what are you doing, or what are people in your area doing about these families that come across, not at a port of entry, so they're coming across without the authorizations that are required to enter this country? What are you doing about that? Well, we protest. We show up en masse at, like, Tornillo, which I think has made the news. And we make public the shame that has been brought upon us by these 
arcane kind of laws. That's about the best that we can do at this point. I try to make connection with the Border Patrol agents to find out, does this impact them? I found out from one, yes, it does. Found out from another, no, no, no big deal. I can't bore from within, so to speak. And there you, you've gone to the first person singular, I, as opposed to we. Is there a group that you work with that, in terms of protests, is this widespread? You, you talk about, you try and show up en masse. We is CAFE, known as Comunidades en Acción y de Fe. There's the group called Border Rights Group, called La Red. And then there's the uh, spontaneous groups that will form, that are, are supported by the ACLU. The ACLU will show up and make sure that when the police start beating us up, that they do so legally. Do they start beating you up? You're talking about when they violate your rights. Yeah, and so we're theoretically have witness to that possibility. The uh, Border Patrol has not attacked the masses that I go with. They'll make a show of force, you know, like, like somebody flexing their arm, show their muscle. They'll ride around horses around the group, fly helicopters overhead, and um, run their four-wheelers up and down the fence and, and really act macho. And, and we tremble in our boots. And uh, after we pissed ourselves, we'd go away. You mentioned earlier something called Project Oak Tree, and I, I've got the link for that on NorthernSpiritRadio.org. What is Project Oak Tree? Who is that for, and, and what do you do specifically? Project Oak Tree is, is in response to the immigrants' needs. And we call them immigrants, but they're traveling people. They're traveling workers, and when they come to the United States, they're going to work, specifically because they have families and they're going to support their families, at least those that can stay intact. The Project Oak Tree provides support while the contact is made with the relatives of the people who get through the port of entry. And that is done essentially in the following fashion. This is sort of a synopsis. It's not necessarily true in every case. Someone will show up, or a group of people will show up at Annunciation House and will be distributed from there. And they show up at Annunciation House because Border Patrol or ICE will deliver them. Then from there, they're distributed to the Project Oak Tree, because the two are linked, Annunciation House and Oak Tree. They go to Project Oak Tree. We've got nine centers to house, feed, scrub, and clothe people. And people will show up exhausted, unwashed, unfed, and needing to rest and needing to clean up. We provide that service, and people will show up. They scrub down and eat a decent meal, and uh, their kids are given something to play with. The, the folks that are, whose clothes are torn off their backs are given fresh clothing, and the contact is made with their relatives in, uh, say, Des Moines or Denver or Kansas City or Chicago or other places. The contact is made with the relative who knows that these folks are coming, and the, re- the relative then is responsible for transportation. And the relative sends the funds to buy a, either a bus ticket or a train ticket for the refugee, for the person who's an asylum seeker. So the asylum seeker then is taken to the bus station or the airport by volunteers at Project Oak Tree. And so this is essentially a ministry of welcome. Yeah. People come across, you're welcoming. You talk about them arriving beleaguered, and they're, they're coming to connect with family. So this is not, they're just fleeing the country? This Are they looking to immigrate to the United States, or is this just 
you know, tourist. No, somehow they got, everybody seems to have had gotten the information that, one, you'll be safe in the U.S., two, you'll have an opportunity. And for mo- the most part, it's true, although I know of one person who got to the U.S., got a green card, and he's, he says he's safe but not free. And that's because the uh, ICE institution and the Border Patrol people keep harassing him. And he was a reporter in Mexico, and he fled for his safety and got to the United States and managed to get through all the rigmarole and got a green card and was theoretically safe, but he never could get himself free, free of the watchful eye of Uncle Sam and his agents. So these people who are coming across, who Project Oak Tree is helping, they've got ankle bracelets so that they're going to be traced so that... Uh, I guess that means that the government feels sure that they can track them down and get them out of the country if they decide to do that. Is it like they're on a temporary visa, or what's the setup? Well, it can be considered a temporary visa, but they're allowed under conditions, under the condition that they get an immigration lawyer and that they show up on their court date, which is set by an agreement between the immigration lawyer and the judge. And the judge can be anywhere in the United States. As long as and, and what's that court case about? It'll be a federal judge, and it'll be a court case to see if there, is, in fact, is a credible case for granting asylum. So it is about asylum. They're not just it coming is. to visit neighbors. Okay. Oh, no. Or visiting family and friends. Okay. They're escaping violence and fear. My understanding is that a lot of people come to claim asylum, but the Border Patrol will only listen to a couple of them per day and then make the rest wait. That's pretty much correct. It varies day by day by day. There's no absolute figures on that. Uh, Sometimes it'll take four, sometimes it'll take five, sometimes take one. Sometimes it's vacation time. Nobody gets across. When I was talking to you yesterday, Tim, you mentioned that there's a significant difference in the attitudes and your attitude toward Border Patrol versus ICE. Could you flash that out for our listeners? Yeah. I've made initial contact with Border Patrol personnel. Talk to them like, like a human being ask questions and find information of what, what's the job like? How are you doing? Is this uh, a lot of fun? Is it good parts, bad parts? Do you get to go home at night? And I get to find out that, yeah, they get to home. There's a 10-hour shift. They get to go home at night. They work 10 hours a day. I talked to one who lives an hour away from the main office, for lack of a better term. <laughs> and uh, he has to drive an hour, work 10 hours, drive another hour, go home. And that sounds really grueling. The one thing that's attractive about the Border Patrol is you can make more money there than, than I could ever work in construction. And that ordinary teachers can't make that much. So it, it certainly seems obvious that if I'm working in the fields, for example, picking onions, that it's a lot easier to pick up my brothers and sisters and work for the Border Patrol. So that's my contact and understanding of the Border Patrol. These are ordinary people that are working hard, that believe in what they're doing for the most part. Some just don't, but they do it anyway. Some are questionable in terms of their ethics. That just happens to be how the cookie crumbles. The Border Patrol wears brown suits. ICE, on the other hand, wears black suits with the letters ICE on them. So when the ice man cometh, we runneth. The uh, difference between the ice person, the one I've been able to talk with one, and everybody else was I was talking to a very closed mind. And he kept calling me brother. 
You know, I pass for white because I look white. Biologically, I am white. So I could get away with it. And he calls me brother. And he was pretty brutal about the way he says that. Your brother. Uh-huh. Okay. And I was just asking him what he was, whether he was, we were at the college and I was asking him he was taking classes. Actually, he was there to serve papers to uh, arrest someone. And so I was kind of interfering with that, you know, without being noticeable, not making a big fuss of it. Because there was another group of people there that were going to make a big fuss of it. And you can win more friends with honey than with vinegar. So I was trying to be compatible with him. And then if I had to, I could intervene. But he decided just to fill out papers and toss them across a desk. So I didn't have to make much of an effort. But his rather rigid presentation and the fact that he drove up in a very identifiable vehicle, uh, which was the black dramatic vehicle, tinted windows. Now the rest of us were driving junk, we're driving stuff that we can paste together. But he shows up with his fancy vehicle, and we know it's obvious that he's a cop, that he's, that his particular copishness is ICE. The other people that I've talked with about these institutions of the Border Patrol and ICE view them both as rogue institutions. I think that that's a valid view from the point of view that they answer to no one, even the Attorney General. They tell the General, particularly true of the uh, Border Patrol, They'll tell the attorney general what they're going to do, how I'm going to play my game. ICE is responsible to no one. And so they'll, they decide one day to go and raid houses. And they'll show up running around with tennis shoes on and, and T-shirts, knocking on doors, until they find somebody that, that qualifies, fits their profile, and off they go. And they've done that to a family that has been in the United States for 20 years, has raised a family, and the father of the family didn't bother with the paperwork because you know, it's boring, it's expensive, and it takes a heck of a lot of time, average eight to ten years. So he's, yeah, who, why, why do this when I've got other things to do? So he's working in the community of Las Cruces. He gets awards from the city council for his efforts for the city of Las Cruces. And for all of his efforts for our community, he gets hauled off by ICE. And because he's touched the stone of ice, he's going to be tossed across the border. There was no saving him. The same thing was true with, with another mother was picked up. Same horrible story. We called the uh, Border Patrol agent, no, it was the ICE agent, in El Paso, begging for her release on these grounds. That she's a mother. She's been in Las Cruces for 20-some-odd years. Her family is here. Why throw her across the border? And so we're waiting, holding our breaths, seeing if that's going to happen. And then, yep, we were held in suspension for about five or six days, waiting for the information to come across, whether she was going to be granted release or removed. And because he had the power, supported by the U.S. government and its agents, he uh, said, nah, send her across the border. And so we got to watch as she left town. We weren't happy. Some of the people you've been talking about are people who've presented their papers, come across border point of entry, and there's the people who come across without any authorization at those points, and their fate is much different. You said they're just kind of grabbed up, put somewhere, separated from children. Do they get deported? They go to court. How do you support those kinds of folks? That's a tough one because the Border Patrol, we have no access. Ordinary humans just Perhaps that's the wrong term. Civilians are not allowed access. 
from the detention centers, these people that get swept up by ICE, will be hauled to the federal courthouses in El Paso or in Las Cruces. In those federal courthouses, they appear before a federal magistrate judge, and they're charged appropriately with either being first-time crossers, which is 1325 law, says that they're charged with a misdemeanor for their crime, charged $5,000, six months in jail, and $100-something fee. And those advice that they're given by their public defender will give them advice saying, this possibly is the only way to go, the best way to go. Plead guilty, get tossed across the border, and deal with it from there. And so the public defenders work as much as they can to reduce the impact of the brutality of the system. One of the ways they do that is to get people through the system and back across the border as quickly as possible. And this is true for the first-time crossers. Second-time crossers, it's a little harder because the fees and the fines go way up. And uh, 20 years and bunches of thousands of dollars in fines plus special fees. So all of this, this saber-rattling goes on in the courtroom. And the defendants, or the people that are swept up by the Border Patrol, they're all in chains. They're intimidated by being in groups and being chained together and are not real anxious to plead innocent, with very few exceptions. And some of them are, I want to plead for asylum. And one person I saw, out of the hundreds, I have seen hundreds and hundreds of people going through the courtroom, all in chains and wearing detention uniforms, so, I, you know, there's no way to tell where they're from. And it, I, that information is extremely difficult to get. The courtroom in Las Cruces is kind of closed, and access to information is either very difficult or kind of expensive. Anyway, I digress. The second-time offenders are, again, run through the system, but this time they have to go through three hearings, and the judges will promise them fair hearings, and you'll be treated right and in a court of law and all that sort of stuff. One of the crazy things about this is all these people who are being detained are wearing earphones. Their charges are being read to them, translated into Spanish by an interpreter, while the judge is speaking in English. And I have had those earphones on to hear what it's like, listening in Spanish and hearing in English. And it's a zoo. The detainees cannot discern in depth what's being said, other than you're threatened and... uh, we're going to toss you across the border. All the other niceties, like uh, you'll get a trial in front of a jury and uh, you can ask questions or you can remain silent, blah, blah, quack, quack. That, that means nothing. It has no impact or relative information at all, particularly because it just has nothing to do with the kind of legal systems that people come from, which, if not totally corrupt, are based on... Uh, the European form of law, which you're, you're guilty until you're proved innocent. So that all this nicey-nicey talk just is taking up time. I have argued for having all of the charges and all of everything read over the inter- microphones uh, in the courtroom, over the speakers, to be in Spanish so that everybody who speaks Spanish, and not everybody does. We have people from Ecuador and El Salvador that uh, speak Quechua and Kiche and Hmong, and uh, there's been other countries represented too, like from China, for example. At any rate, so that 
if we had translation, if we had a judge translated instead of him being translated, I believe that things would be a lot more comprehensible, especially because the Border Patrol predominantly speaks Spanish. They have to, because the people you're picking up speak Spanish for the most part. And for a, a wild guess, at least 90%. So they dropped into these detention centers, and the people that work in the detention centers, local people, language spoken, Spanish. They're driven to uh, Las Cruces, language spoken, Spanish. Why not continue that particular form throughout the entire legal system? So the real information is comprehensible. I have only met with resistance except in one case with, for that. Another piece of information that may or may not be relevant is the federal courts tend to exist for their own pleasure. The judges are not particularly aware of the world that they live in and will make decisions about people's lives that are a little irrelevant. And uh, they're not accessible. The judges, I cannot, I'm not allowed to speak to the judges. At one time, I was able to ask a question of a judge, and that's when I brought up the Spanish thing. And, of course, he, he couldn't possibly fathom what I was saying. That was I'm not, sure, I'm not sure I understand that. He couldn't understand what you were saying because? Because the dominance of English is being, quote, the mainstream language and its legal, quote, position in society. The reality is in New Mexico, our constitution is in two languages, one of them being Spanish, the other being English. How come we can't stay the course and uh, recognize our reality, which is that we're surrounded by people who do not necessarily speak English or, or have any desire or need? Uh, at any rate, so I'm beating my own drum on that one. But again, my question uh, from the start was, uh, so what are you doing in this role? Are you, they've been picked up when crossing into the United States. They haven't presented where they're supposed to, according to the rules. They've been hauled in that. What role do you or other activists have? We have a, a group called Los Testigos, and that translates to the witnesses. And we'll sit in the courtroom watching the proceedings. Our initial hope was to have some impact on the judges. I've learned since that we don't, that they might pretend to be a little nicer, but they still have their preconditioned assumptions. And trying to change them is, I don't know how to do that. So as a testigo, I sit in the courtroom watching hundreds and hundreds of people go by in chains, listening to the charges that they're charged with, and watching them get raise their right hand, which it, when you get, if you put your hand down by your, your pocket, right hand by your pocket, you're supposed to raise your right hand, pretending that you're chained, you pick your hand up at your pocket. That's what it's like to raise your hand in court in, in the United States if you're in chains. You cannot lift it. Your motion is restricted. So we watch that sort of silliness go on. We watch the uh, public defenders mumbling things about, we believe it's in our best interest that our clients are deported, or they'll, they have fancier ways of saying it. I have seen, I've been personally witnessing at some court cases where the public defender thought they had a credible case uh, for asylum uh, or for 
transgression of protocol. In other words, a person had been under surveillance when picked up, which means that, that they've essentially been arrested at the border. Right, right. But this magic line seems to flare into a V. You happen to be caught in that V. If it's vertical, you're not in the United States. You're in custody. So one case was that. This was a case that I saw a border patrol agent corrupt the information. It simply, they had corrupted the information. They brought the corrupted information to the court, and it was so obvious to me that it was corrupted. But the judge being the innocent judge that he is, says the police are always right. And so they had the Border Patrol said, no, he wasn't under surveillance, when in fact I knew he was. So the public defender lost the case. I talked with her afterwards, and she said she knew she was going to lose because that particular judge is that way. And we dialogued about how, how wonderful that felt. Another case was, and this is a heartbreaker, a young woman who's like 18, 19, comes to the United States through what is, and there's a statue on a mountain that's at what is in the U.S., and it's uh, it's a, st- a statue of, can't remember the name. And so the border wall goes right up to almost the edge of that statue. But there's a way to step across that magic line that we call the border. She took a cab with her brother. He was 17. She took a, takes a cab up to the statue and then walks across the border. In the midday, she's under surveillance when she's seen at the border. And uh, there's a bit of, they, they fudged on the information there. She's under surveillance. The guy's watching her with, with field glasses. So he calls his buddy, with, who's about 100 feet away, She's walking down the road, and she was so glad to see somebody in the United States that had a uniform on because she thought that she would be treated well here in the U.S. Uh, Her brother was immediately taken away from her. She was thrown into detention. She's from El Salvador. She left because she was under threat of murder if her brother didn't join a uh, gang. She gave that information at at the uh, detention center, they paid a lot of attention to her and sent her immediately to, from the Border Patrol Processing Center, they sent her to the detention center. And then from there, she went to the federal courthouse, and the public defender argued her case in front of a judge who we were hoping would realize that this was a, a false case, that she, had, she was a very naive young woman who honestly didn't know which way the cookie crumbles because she walked right into the arms of the Border Patrol thinking that she would be saved. And, nope, she wasn't. Um, and so that means she's sent right back. Or she right. is sent back, and the uh, public defender was, of course, very sad. So we, so we sat around and cried, and then we went, went home. And so that's your work with Los Testigos, the witnesses. Yep. And so that's one of the organizations. And, folks, we've been speaking with Tim Reed here today, active with a number of different Efforts at Compassion Across the Border, right near Las Cruces, New Mexico. Project Oak Tree is one of them. Again, the website, rcdlc.org slash oak tree. 
and freedomforimmigrants.org is another one. But those websites are on nordenspiritradio.org. You want to look up CAFE, C-A-F-E, which is one of the organizations that is trying to bring compassion to the area as well. There's an addition to other groups that are, that are in protesting. SWEC, which is the Southwest Environmental Center, and it's c- combined with original peoples. Their main focus is environment, and they're protesting the wall because it's damaging the environment. The wall is also going, going through sacred lands and through directly through reservation lands. So there's many, many reasons to be concerned about this yep. wall, this fence, this yep. prohibition of compassion. It's, it's an impediment to compassion. And Tim Reed has been part of a number of different groups and peoples who are trying to bring compassion back to this area, so beleaguered by the current policies of our national administration. Tim, thank you for taking on this burden. Choosing to move from construction to building compassion is not a bad job change, I would say. Pay is very different, (laughs) but it feels a whole lot better. It doesn't hurt. Again, thank you for doing that work, and please take our wishes and prayers back to the people doing that work in New Mexico and anywhere along the border with Mexico. And thank you for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Ben said, Amos, we will succeed. My thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance on today's program. I think I'll send you out today with a bittersweet song by Steve Deasy, a folk musician and activist from just outside of Detroit, Michigan, who was my guest for our Song of the Soul program way back in 2010. He's got some quite poignant words on how we treat those seeking entrance into the USA in his song, People Once Were Welcome Here. Thanks for joining us today, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. Here's Steve Deasy, People Once Were Welcome Here. Good people of France once so admired us Gave us a gift that we call Lady Liberty Emma Lazarus wrote a poem that so inspired us We hung it on the wall for all the world to see Because it wasn't long ago that in this great land The oppressed and poor were welcome at our door They came with their hopes and dreams and by the millions The wretched refuse of your teeming shore We used to say, give me your tired, your poor But you don't hear that kind of talk no more Treat our immigrants like criminals And fill their hearts with fear But people once were welcome here We speak out about oppression in other countries We're so happy that the Berlin Wall came down While we build a wall across our southern border 
guess we're just not all that down with brown. So give me your white, your well-heeled, and your wealthy. And folks that have the skill sets that we need. Keep the rest to be a source of cheap offshore labor. That's the best way you can serve the land of the free. We used to say, give me your tired, your poor. You don't hear that kind of talk no more. We treat our immigrants like criminals and fill their hearts with fear. But people once were welcome here. Now many folks around the world despise us, even the French. Gave us Lady Liberty. Nowadays, you'd hardly recognize us as we round up 12 million future deportees. Ah, but we believe in truth in advertising. It's time to take Emma's poem down from the wall. Maybe find the lady a new home where they still believe in peace and liberty for all. We used to say, "Give me your tired, your poor," but you don't hear that kind of talk no more. We treat our immigrants like criminals and fill their hearts with fear. But people once were welcome here. People once were welcome here. The theme music for this program is "Turning of the World," performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on NorthernSpiritRadio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo. 